Welcome to the future of the administrative state, where we explore the virtues and vices of administrative power at a time when both right and left fear a growing executive branch. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Each week, we explore a different aspect of the administrative state and its political ramifications. Joining me today is Paul Verkail, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and President Emeritus of the College of William and Mary. A well-known professor and scholar of administrative law, Paul served as chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States from 2010 to 2015 and has published numerous books and dozens of articles on public law and regulation. His most recent book, Valuing Bureaucracy, The Case for Professional Government, makes a positive case for the administrative state. Paul, it's a pleasure having you on. Well, thank you, Tony. I, I appreciate the opportunity. The administrative state has has come under lots of fire lately, especially among conservatives, as being perhaps beyond the scope of our democratic government, as being overly burdensome on business. Uh, I want to get into some of those issues a bit. But your view, uh, which you articulate in your, your book, Valuing Bureaucracy, uh, cuts against the grain and, and suggests that bureaucracy is, in fact, the solution, not the problem. Could you explain that idea a little bit? Uh, sure. The um, word bureaucracy, of course, has a pejorative context, unfortunately. But um, we all live in a, in a society where we need bureaucrats to deliver the public services that we expect. And it's ironic, really, that the bureaucrats are, in general, uh, looked down upon when they provide these essential services. And the, the, for me, the big contrast is, is with, the, uh, with the military. We always, we increasingly now, ever since Vietnam, I might say, admire those who serve, even when there are adventures that don't work out, military uh, exercises that shouldn't have been deployed. But we never get the same benefit of uh, the doubt uh, given to the bureaucracy. So that is my mission here, and generally, uh, to make that change. What, one thing that struck me in your book was a graph which you cite showing uh, it, it, it plots the number of federal civilian uh, workers, and it con contrasts that with overall federal spending. And the result, the resulting picture is that the number of workers hasn't changed effectively since the Kennedy era, whereas obviously uh, federal spending has has grown considerably. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that discrepancy and what it means for bureaucracy today? Sure. Well, first of all, I owe that chart to uh, John DiUlio, the well-known professor at Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania, political scientist of great renown. John, and I basically, with his permission, have reproduced his chart. His chart shows that uh, since 1960, in John Kennedy's administration, we've had about 2 million civil servants, civilian civil servants, and that number has stayed the same more than 50, 60 years later, whereas the GDP has gone up five times, and so you get a flat line for the civil service and this a dramatically increasing line for the GDP, and assuming GDP um, relates somehow to the need for government to regulate, um, and the fact that we have all kinds of new agencies uh, 
that, that came on board, like EPA and Homeland Security since the 60s, you wonder how it's possible to do the same job that with John Kennedy's folks were asked to do with those who are now working for President Trump. And the answer has to be that gap is filled by contractors. Because the number, we're kidding ourselves, it's, it's always, you hear on these business reports sometimes that, you know, the bureaucracy is out of control, it's, but it's, it's minimal size compared to its assignment. It's particularly striking when you consider, as you mentioned, the, the rise of a lot of new agencies uh, in, in the 70s in particular, uh, without seeing a comparable increase in the number, number of civil servants. So the new agencies are much more complicated, as you appreciate, because they're doing, um, you know, social benefit, social cost situations that we didn't take on in the older days. And it, we've had deregulation, which is a good thing for the um, agencies that were really just regulating particular industries, you know, railroads and airlines and so forth, without much productivity. But the new agencies are doing much more complicated work. I mean, climate change, um, clean water, clean air, and, of course, the safety and security of our country and our people. And so they need good people. In your book, you refer to this as uh, the rise of the uh, as resulting in the rise of the contractor state, uh, which I, I enjoyed as sort of a, uh, a counter to the idea of the administrative state. Uh, how... Yeah. How did we get here exactly? What's what's the trajectory from you know the, from John Kennedy to today? Um, why has this discrepancy between spending and the civilian workforce come about? Do you think? Well, unfortunately, the politics of the situation made it ripe for people to come in and run against uh, the government. Um, and I think really a big movement was during the Reagan years. When the government, when President Reagan famously said that government is not the solution, government is the problem. And even in the Clinton years, when, when President Clinton said, well, uh, the year of big government is over, whatever, you know, he would meant there. Um, so, so we've had this momentum politically to diminish the government in importance and in quality. And we're now paying the price. It's very hard to, bring on new um, government officials. See, John Delilio's point in his uh, chart was that we need another, a million more government officials to get catch up at least partially with the amount that we had percentage-wise during the Kennedy years. And he realizes, I think, although he made the case and he can, you, know, I, you could support it, that it's very hard to imagine that happening. A million new federal employees, for example. You were appointed by uh, President Obama to be the head of the uh, Administrative Conference of the United States. Could you talk a little bit about what that agency is and maybe uh, point to some uh, examples in dealing with these problems during your tenure there? Sure. The agency is an independent federal agency created actually by John Kennedy in 1961. And its purpose was to improve the performance of government agencies generally. It, it's the Administrative Conference of the United States. It compares to the Judicial Conference of the United States, whose job is, of course, to improve the performance of the courts. And the beautiful thing about this agency was that it was 
comprised of people who mostly volunteered their time. The uh, membership comes either from the public sector, uh, where government members, and, or the private sector, who are experienced former government members who give their time and and meet in plenary session to debate uh, issues and uh, recommendations that have been teed up by the staff, which I was in charge of running and developing. And indeed, I had a prior experience as an academic um, providing consultant reports to the to the conference um, when uh, Justice Scalia had my job uh, many years ago. Um, so it's, that notes that it's bipartisan and it look, thinks and acts in the best interest of government without regard to the political moments or the policies that are in favor necessarily but one to the other. It's, and it's about process not about substance. We we stay away from substance. Uh, now, some of the examples. I, I mean, actually, many of the things we did try and help agencies become more effective. And we have a big commitment to rulemaking, improving the quality of uh, rulemaking, the information, how it's received, the public participation, transparency, and so forth. We do other we spend a lot of time, for example, on complicated agency uh, assignments such as Social Security disability, which is an area that I've, I've worked on in my own work. The disability problem is that we don't have enough good deciders to fill the positions that are needed to keep this backlog from growing. Huh. Millions of people are waiting in line to receive their disability payments or, or indeed to be denied, um, but at least to get a hearing. At the, and the administrative law judges are not being supplied adequately. We looked into that. It's one of these examples I use in the book about how it's frustrating to see how government can't respond when it needs to to increase quickly the number of people necessary to make important decisions. And that's another example. But what I got mostly um, from this whole experience, really, Tony, was a respect for the people who work in government and do their jobs well, uh, you know, without any fame or glory. Um, I mean, I met so many professionals. That's why I titled this The Case for Professional Government. These are people, you know, devoted their lives and understanding and then implementing important uh, missions of, of the administrative state. Did you encounter the, the particular problem uh, that you describe in your book with the rise of, of private contractors? And, or if not, could you talk about that problem a little bit, what the practical, functional uh, issues uh, that the role of contractors can present in uh, an, an effective bureaucracy? First of all, this is not, I'm not, the book is not anti-contractor. The contractors have roles they can play, important roles they can play, um, to support and supplement government, but they cannot replace government decision makers at high responsible levels. So that's my first um, distinction. There, and there are really constitutional reasons uh, why the government must be run by professionals who are sworn in and take the oath of office. And I make a, a big point of the oath itself. Uh, after all, George Washington took the oath of office first, and and it was in the Constitution for a reason, because the oath separates the government employee 
professional career person from the contractor. Contractors don't take an oath of office. They certainly they may take oaths to their employers, but their employers are are private sector. Um, we need the oath to differentiate differentiate contractors from government employees and then give the government employees the overall responsibility for running the government. Uh, and there is something called inherent government functions, which are those that cannot be contracted out, but as a practical matter, that that uh, idea is, is violated on a, on a regular basis. I go into detail on that. How do you make the government inherent functions test work better? And um, contractors um, all along and can do many things well, and some things they should be doing. If we don't put them in the place of key decision makers. Um, there are some agencies which I spend time with which are 90%, 80% contractor agencies. Department of Energy is one. Um, even Department of um, the um, USAID uh, is another one, 90%. Um, and when you get to uh, Homeland Security, it's highly contractor leveraged. Department of Defense highly contractor leveraged. You wonder uh, whether these contractors are really doing, many of them are doing fine work, but whether they're the key ones are doing appropriate work. And, the, and by the way, you can relate, this important, you, uh, otherwise, you know, you wonder what, what's the concern, but you can relate the quality of performance often to the numbers of contractors running an agency. Mm. Um, because what they do is they take away it's almost even a morale problem, too, because they take away from the role that government employees should have. Government employees frequently can be shunted aside if it's a political issue, for example. Um, there's a little bit of that problem. Um, and then you get contractors in positions where they probably shouldn't be. listening to the future of the administrative state. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. I'm speaking with Paul Verkyle, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and former chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He has been explaining why he thinks the real problem is not the rise of the administrative state, but what he calls the contractor state, federal agencies increasing reliance on private sector contractors to perform governmental functions, something that has both practical and constitutional implications. In response, Paul makes a case for more and better bureaucracy. So we have on the one hand a sort of uh, pragmatic problem, which you're suggesting here, and then on the other hand, this potentially a constitutional problem where private contractors are, however vital and useful in certain respects, taking on what might be described as proper governmental functions or duties, and so you get sort of constitutional concerns there. One thing that interested me about that idea is that it it seems, uh, in fact, both of these ideas, um, they seem like they might have resonance um, among conservatives who worry often about the constitutional issues involved in administrative power generally. Um, but if one's concern is congressional oversight over administrative agencies, it seems like it could be even more problematic from a constitutional perspective if those agencies are then further delegating power to private contractors. That's a very good insight. Exactly what I think what happens is 
conservative or liberal, what we're worried about is the delegation problem. Now, the conservatives would say we shouldn't delegate in the first place, right? That maybe right. Um, Congress should write the rules and so clearly that we don't need agencies to use rulemaking to fulfill them, to fulfill mm -hmm. the statutory mandates. And that non-delegation doctrine you know, has is, is not something that has worked out too well, but it is there. But then if you do, think about delegating a second time beyond to the federal employee and career professional to the contractor, now you've got a double delegation problem there. There was a recent case about double delegation when you give delegations, let's say, to this independent agency like the SEC, and then you redelegate to administrative law judges or agencies within uh, that agency. Is that double delegation too much? Well, this is a variation on the double delegation problem, and it is a, a serious, lively um, constitutional issue. The second uh, part of it is, of course, the Take Care Clause in Article 2 of the Constitution, which is the president's responsibility to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The president has to use government officials to fulfill that responsibility, which is both to the Congress and to the people. Well, I, I would like to delve a little deeper into some of these constitutional issues, but before doing that, uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about some of the more practical implications, as you see them, uh, of the current state of bureaucracy, in particular because something that struck me in your in your writing uh, is another area of possible bipartisan agreement, which is that, uh, according to your arguments as I understand them, the way our bureaucracy is currently set up, uh, we actually wind up with, in effect, bigger government, um, less efficient, more costly uh, governmental functions, so that uh, on your view, if we were to increase the uh, number of civil servants, have more effective uh, bureaucracy, we would actually get some of the results that many conservatives advocate for. Could you talk about that dynamic a little bit and, and what what could be done in that regard? Sure. The, um, the idea is that having the right people in place doing a good job, the civil service functioning well, is a much better solution and more cost-effective than hiring contractors. Contractors in general, and it's hard to get information on this, but they generally cost the agency more. Now, sometimes it's smart. If you don't have a long-term project and you want to fill, fulfill a particular mission or you have, need certain expertise that government really can't bid for effectively, then you get the contractors. But if you go too far and just use contractors in lieu of the civil service on a regular basis, uh, and there are agencies where this occurs. Um, then you really go to what I call the who's on first problem, who's in charge of the agency. You can't tell. If you walk into a, a large room with a lot of government officials, you don't know who's contractor and who's the government. Uh, and then I think the conservatives should be concerned about the cost, for example. I, I think we could demonstrate that contractors are not always cost effective, mostly not, because they are not used in a very careful way. And the budgeting is not, it, it's short-term budgeting frequently, and it doesn't reveal the limitations. The other thing about it is, and this was brought to mind by this horrible Glenfell Towers fire in 
in London. In London. Yeah. Um, contractors sometimes do things they shouldn't do, and if we see the price is very high. Take what happened. Apparently, part of the reason why we had this this these um, failure of inspection of the buildings, which the London Londoners now locally are trying to fix, is because they were contracted out, outsourced the inspection requirements, and um, those. Therefore, the outsourcing led to a weakening and, and an ignoring of the problem of these. What happens is the outside panels uh, became fire walls that really brought the fire all the way up the building. And in the U.S., we have better rules and regulations um, so that you don't want to do contracting out and then have to pay this horrible human and physical cost when you've made a mistake. Um, I pick on, uh, I have selected out about five different states, because this is not just a federal problem, the contracting issue. Five different states where the contracting decision um, wasn't very wise. And um, I try and explain it and analyze what would have happened had the government been able to stand up better to its responsibilities than, than it was allowed to do. Um, because there's this other political movement which is is coming on strong in the states and uh, that will public employment which seeks to undermine the civil service system itself. Could you talk a little bit about the role of regulatory capture uh, in the in the so-called contractor state? What exactly is that concept and, and how does it work? Because I think here too there, there may be some issues which uh, strike me as not partisan, but just uh, issues that might be of, of concern to, to any any citizen. Yeah, I, I, that is a, an important section of the book. Regulatory capture in, comes into play when we get those who are working for government working for themselves more than for the government, and therefore they're capturing the activities that it should be the public's concern for private benefit. Um, and there's a whole conservative theory, public choice theory, which um, argues that, you know, maybe what the big, maybe one of the biggest things government officials do is maximize their own well-being, which is their jobs and their their scope of uh, turf, you would say, control over their future. But if you apply that public, uh, that, that principle um, to Contractors, the problem is much greater. I think we could breach agreement on this um, um, very readily uh, politically. Uh, contractors have much more authority because there's much more at stake. The uh, the service contractors um, have about a 250 billion dollar annual budget that they can reach for in the government. That's the same budget that is provided to the civil service, by the way. $250 billion a year is the entire civil service. Wow. So contractors have a lot more greater interest in maximizing their personal gain, uh, even than if you believe uh, public choice theorists that, that government officials themselves might have. Um, I happen to think that government officials work for things other than money, and, and they certainly work for prestige, presumably, but they also work because they they care about their position and they care about public service, which is an 
issue that you know contractors simply don't have so readily in mind. They they are more in the as a marketplace force. Even given lots of uh, skepticism about government today, uh, there are also populist worries about uh, sort of entrenched interests in government. So it seems like this is an area where there there may be public receptivity to some kinds of reform. I have the last two sections of my book really talk about two possibilities. We do need civil service reform. Uh, we don't need civil service <laughs> the destruction, which I think all at will public employment is intended to do. And there is a bill in, in Congress now that uh, deals with that. But we need reform. We need to make it easier to hire and to fire and, um, uh, if necessary, uh, government officials. It, one of the frustrations, having been an agency head for the last five and a half years, mm -hmm. well, is that it's very, very difficult to, to work your way through the civil service system. And if indeed it takes a long time to get someone hired, and uh, for and if they need security clearances, that takes another year. Uh, whereas contractors are sitting there able to come in, uh, and they may have their security clearances already. And so your natural tendency, if you're a leader and you're a political leader and you've got limited time, is is to, is to lean in that direction. The same thing with with termination. It's very hard to if you find someone is not performing adequately or well uh, to get rid of them. Uh, there's a, a you know a complicated uh, process to um, that goes through the several layers of bureaucracy that could take years to to get terminate a non-performing public sector employee. But whereas contractors, uh, if you don't like what they're doing, you can call the company that employs them and tell them you know get me somebody else. Hmm. So that so those are reasons why we may also be using contractors more than adequate. And unless we fix those problems on the civil service side, which I hope there would be bipartisan agreement to do, we're not going to get rid of that sort of false incentive to use contractors. Uh, so we need to, you know, get rid of these disincentives by, by making the, improving the civil service system without <laughs> jeopardizing or jettisoning jettisoning the civil service system. That's a tricky proposition, um, and we, we need to get bipartisan agreement with people of good faith who can see their way clear to getting the right end on this. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. Are, are you optimistic about the possibility of some of these reforms, given the current political climate or the current administration? I, I think, obviously, there, there would be I think interest on, on both sides of the aisle for uh, improving the efficiency or effectiveness of bureaucracy, but the implied um, uh, assumption that bureaucracy is also valuable, I think, may be more uh, problematic in, in certain political circles. Um, how do you see uh, prospects for reform going forward? Well, I don't think it's on the agenda of the incoming administration very Clearly, uh, there was some talk early on that maybe we should have the equivalent of a Hoover, Hoover Commission. President Hoover, back in the 50s, did a marvelous job leading civil service and government reform. But I have seen nothing of it yet. And the big, to me, the biggest problem for the administration is that 
they have not appointed key political figures in the agencies. I mean, they're way behind. So what happens, ironically, uh, Tony, is that we now have the government career people running these agencies until such time as they are replaced by appropriate political officials. And until you get that sort of phase in place, it's hard to think about how you're going to improve the system. Um, and, and that's a very slow go right now. Um, and it's so slow that there's even something called a Vacancy Act problem. The Vacancy Act says that a civil servant cannot act in a position as an acting agency head or, or department, whatever, you know, lower, not lower level assignments for more than, um, you know, nine months. And, and they're, of course, been acting now for almost six months. So by October, there's going to be a problem with using the career people uh, who are sitting there in default running agency uh, positions unless there's some better appointments. And I hope that perhaps, you know, the administration will say, look, let's see how we can. They're getting, going to get to know the career folks pretty well because they're sitting in positions right now where they haven't, where, you know, sec secretaries of agencies haven't had their chance to get their political people in yet, so they're learning how to work with them. Um, and maybe that might turn out to have a positive effect on their views of the bureaucracy. One thing that struck me uh, in your book was uh, some, some polling data which you cite that a lot of the public is not as dissatisfied with federal agencies as we might think. And in particular, I was struck by the surprisingly favorable ratings that the Postal Service gets, given how that's commonly brought out as an example of inefficiency. So perhaps there is uh, more public support for these kinds of reforms uh, than we might we might think, given the political climate. Definitely. The, uh, you know, when we talk about public attitudes towards government, a lot of it is directed to Congress. That's got very low, as you know, very low uh, report of positive I mean, it's in a, I don't even take the numbers, they're very low. But Congress is not all of government. And to some extent, of course, the president is up for, gets a lot of criticism. But the actual people who run government, um, people love the work that's being done in Social Security. They, they get high marks. If you look agency by agency, the public attitudes are much more positive towards government than they are when you just pick the Congress and the president. Um, as the key determinators of what people think about government. Hmm. Uh, thinking of the National Park Service, it's, it's in the 90% range. You know, these are hmm. people who they know and they work with and they appreciate. And thinking about uh, Congress a little bit, and I want to get back to some of these constitutional issues maybe as a, a note to close on, uh, something that our listeners will be familiar with is the conservative critique of administrative power uh, the idea, which we alluded to earlier, the idea that Congress uh, is delegating its proper constitutional functions to the executive branch, or even perhaps less um, dramatically, simply the idea that administrative agencies have run amok and are too much in the business of creating law as opposed to carrying out law. Are, are you sympathetic to any of that critique? And if not, uh, what would you say to it? I have some sympathy with the notion that we, Congress should not pass off hard decisions to agencies. And that, I think, they could work 
they must work better at. They should write statutes where, which are more clear and therefore don't require. I mean, you know, we've been through certain statutes. Uh, uh, Dodd-Frank, for example, the rulemaking responsibilities of, or the uh, Affordable Care Act, even though it was a very long statute, there were a lot of rulemaking responsibilities that could have perhaps been better handled through direct legislation. So I am sympathetic to that. But there's also this problem of Congress capacity to write. Um, and here, the reason it's handed off to agencies is because they just can't figure out exactly um, what this, the duty should look like over time. And they have to give some of that delegated power to the responsible politicians, uh, sorry, not responsible agency heads who are apolitical, hopefully, most of them. Mm -hmm. And so that transfer of power may be necessary. So I do think we could argue about at the margins about whether a particular agency transfer is right. Um, but we do have to have some transfer of power. Now, I'm willing to say that just because we believe in a good civil service, which I'm really arguing for, doesn't mean it has to be a large government. Uh, you, if you're going to deregulate and use public-private partnerships and do things that we hear now in the air, especially with all this investment in infrastructure that the administration wants to uh, do, uh, you're going to have to have good managers. The deregulation requires maybe even more good managers because it's not the status quo and you've got to have creative solutions. You cannot turn over to the private hands responsibility for contracting, you know, without good oversight. Look, I mean, this is the the Glenfell Towers problem in a, in a much larger scale. You can't build bridges, right? And you can't uh, do all the major infrastructure, rail lines and so forth without good government uh, contracting, first of all, with the private sector, and then monitoring, measuring it, and making sure it's compliant. Uh, that takes really good people. So we have to agree, I think, conservatives and liberals alike, that we need good people, no matter what direction government is going, whether it's going smaller or getting bigger or staying the same. It seems to me that one of the underlying motivations for a lot of conservative critiques of the administrative state today are wanting to have more uh, a more democratic uh, way of uh, implementing uh, our laws. Do, do you see uh, within the framework uh, that you've laid out where we have delegation to agencies, uh, do you see any ways to make that uh, bureaucratic process of rulemaking uh, and, and formulating regulations more democratic? Um, uh, always. And, and that's what we did at the administrative conference. Um, we were always worried about – rulemaking is so important. As you say, it's really drafting legislation. It's as important as Congress doing it. So we tried to protect – make the rulemaking process efficient, but also make sure that it's transparent, open, and that people's voices are heard. Um, and we and it's properly integrated into the theory of judicial review. I do think we can't underestimate the importance of the democratic process. This is really this this is why we're here. And um, so rules should be promulgated only after good input. They should not be 
managed in such a way as to uh, avoid the necessity for public hearings uh, where views are expressed and are integrated into the final decisions. And that, I mean, I could give you a lot of small examples, but I just want to say the thrust of all of that is in favor of democratic theory. Well, I think that's a, a great note for us to end on. And I, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and share your experience and insight on this. Well, my pleasure, Tony. Thank you for, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Joining me next week is Nicholas Bagley, a professor of law at the University of Michigan who specializes in administrative law, regulatory theory, and health law. He believes contemporary criticisms of the administrative state miss the mark, and that what we need is not more judicial review of administrative action, but more judicial humility.